to all those who are joining the uh, symposium. Um, I am one of the co-chairs of the Medford Energy and Environment Committee, Bob Payne, and um, I'm uh, very happy to welcome you to tonight's um, symposium, which will feature three very interesting uh, presentations. While we're waiting for a few more people to join, uh, just to let you know that chat will be disabled except for the panelists, but you will be able to uh, enter questions in the Q&A box. Uh, you'll be able to basically see the questions um, during the presentation and then uh, during a, a, a approximately 10 minute period at the end of each half hour presentation, um, the questions, questions will be uh, basically reviewed by um, a couple of the moderators and they will ask the presenters uh, questions in turn to try to go through the ones that are maybe popular or, or those that um, maybe have been asked by multiple people. Um, so uh, we'll be starting in a few minutes, very few minutes. And so um, stay tuned and, and, and welcome to tonight's uh, symposium. And Bob, I'll just add one thing that um, along with the Q&A box at the bottom, there will be, um, as Bob mentioned, time for question and answer after each presentation. And you'll also be able to uh, raise your hand by clicking that function on Zoom. Um, so if you prefer to say your question out loud, that's also a possibility. Okay, thank you for that clarification. Nelly, let me know when you think we have um, you know, critical mass to actually start the preliminary introductions and to our groups. I think it might be okay to kick it off now. Um, we're about 10 minutes in, so I think that's good. Folks might still trickle in, but I think that's all right. Okay, uh, by the way, uh, 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 there are two organizations that are coordinating this uh, set of presentations and we are very lucky to get three exciting uh, uh, presenting uh, groups. Uh, the Medford Energy and Environment Committee is one and the Tufts Energy uh, uh, group is the other. So uh, I'll start with the Medford Energy and Environment Committee. Um, and we see here uh, a photo of um, the Mystic River near the, uh, the, the McGuinn School, the, uh, the, the 100 kilowatt uh, wind turbine, a north wind uh, uh, turbine, which was installed in uh, 2009, we'll have more on that later. Uh, and it sort of stands guard over the school and uh, it's an emblem of one of the accomplishments we've made uh, as a committee in our prior committee. Uh, the mission of the mission statement for the committee is to promote policies and actions that improve energy efficiency, encourage conservation and increase the use of renewable energy to meet our present needs while considering the future generations of the Medford community. Now, uh, we have a group of about uh, 10 uh, volunteers. We actually volunteer our time, but we work with the Medford Office of Energy and the Environment to support the city's goals of energy independence and environmental stewardship. Uh, I'm gonna go over some of the uh, members in the next couple slides. Uh, 
as a committee, we provide technical and consulting expertise of the city. We actually um, had to submit our resumes for consideration to uh, the mayor uh, and be selected on the basis of uh, capabilities and, and, and ability to provide the technical and consulting expertise. So we do organize energy and environmental related projects, events and programs that benefit the residents of Medford. Um, and we do have a variety of expertise in the areas of energy efficiency, clean energy, community outreach and education. And I happen to be a meteorologist. Um, these members of the group, uh, first of all, Alicia Hunt is the director of the Office of Energy and Environment. Uh, Luke McNeely, who is actually one of the presenters, and I are co-chairs. Uh, other members on this slide are, oops, let's, I think we're going forward uh, too fast here. Okay, Barry Ingbar and Loretta James. Loretta James has actually worked with Luke on the second presentation. Now let's go forward. Uh, Nicole Morrell is actually uh, on our committee, but also a city councilor. We also have John Rogers, Martha Andres, Kathleen McKenna, Jessica Parks, and Dave Hampton uh, to round out the members of our committee. Um, by the way, we have a website, and I'll show you that link where you can get more information on the background of each member. Some of the programs we've been dealing with in the past have been idle-free uh, educational outreach to try to um, encourage a reduction of idling of cars, especially in uh, sensitive areas like school uh, schools, uh, in, uh, increasing awareness and promoting home energy assessments through no-cost uh, programs operated by MassSafe, for example. Every year, except this year was rained out, <laughs> the Harvest Your Energy Festival is a, is a fall event where we uh, feature local green organizations. And uh, often we've had, an, in coordination with that festival, a green awards program where we have annual awards for environmentally deserving citizens and businesses. And we did have a solarized Medford program a few years ago where there was a, a group purchasing opportunity to reduce the cost of residential and business solar. Now the wind turbine um, was uh, installed by a, a prior committee, which I was actually on, uh, installed in January, 2009, 100 kilowatt capacity. Supplies about 10% of the uh, adjacent schools electricity and it is an educational school for uh, educational tool that is for the school and the public. And my last slide is basically the website where you can get more information on our activities. We also have a, a Facebook page. Okay, I'm gonna stop sharing and I'm going to pass the baton to Sam Glazer of the Tufts Energy Group. Thank you very much. My name is Sam Glazer and I am the current president of Tufts Energy Group. Um, and let me share this. So we are a on main group of mainly undergraduate students who um, are seek to engage and educate Tufts undergraduates in issues surrounding energy, as well as we want to act as a one-stop um, resource for students who want to engage in the industry. Part of what we do is we work closely with different conferences, including the MIT Energy Conference and the Tufts Energy Conference, where we try and connect students to these different events nearby 
and get boost attendance and promote awareness on the campus. For the Tufts Energy Conference, we are fortunate enough to get to work closely with the planning process um, for this great conference that happens every year and will be happening virtually um, at the end of February this year. In addition, we do one of the more fun events that we try and do every year during a normal school year is that we try and host different tours in, with surrounding facilities, including Greentown Labs and the Tufts Energy um, Building. So these seek to educate the student body while getting them out and engaging with um, clean energy and promoting energy efficiency. And this serves as a great way for students to meet like-minded like peers that are also very interested, um, as well as getting to see these new technologies that are getting implemented. In addition, we have our eyes set on a lot of different projects throughout the years. And one of our more interesting ones was um, collaborating with Tufts on, the, on their smart housing project. Tufts received a grant specifically to build a new house entirely from scratch with construction focusing on sustainability and energy efficiency. Um, for, we were fortunate enough to participate in the planning process for this house as well as promote the use of different energy efficient features in the different community housing um, renovations that they were doing that year as well. Um, we also provide a website that um, serves as our main stop for students to be, to get more educated on everything that the energy group has done. We also provide a lot of resources there as possible internships and resources to um, get your foot into the industry as that can be very difficult for new students, um, as well as providing different description of the classes that they can take this year. Um, and here we also promote local events that are going on, um, whether or not we are affiliated with them. So if you want to find out more information, our website is right here um, and you can find us just by looking up Tufts Energy Group. We also have a Facebook and Instagram that can keep you updated on both um, the resources or the events happening nearby as well as our own events. Um, we mainly serve as a group that are just trying to get all the, any student um, more aware about the clean energy industry and trying to get them to engage more with it on campus. So a lot of the times um, students use us for the resource that we provide on our website and we are happy to do so. So now I will introduce um, Henry, our first speaker. He is, um, sorry. He is described as a visionary um, and Henry founded Solar Wave Energy in 1978. Over the last 30 years, he has been involved in all aspects of the design, installation, and service of solar thermal systems, including overseeing um, site-built and factory-built collectors and systems. Um, Henry has been honored with the Cambridge First Day Award given by MIT and the City of Cambridge for his work preserving the environment and the Distinguished Service Award from the Northeast Sustainable Energy Association. He continues to consult on solar thermal designs for building applications. 
And today's presentation from Henry will be focused on what does 100% renewables mean and how do we get there? Um, where he'll describe the rational path that includes energy efficiency and deploying appropriate solar technologies while focusing on the benefits of these technologies. Um, so without further ado, I welcome Henry. Do you have the screen share, Henry? Also, you're muted, Henry. Mute. Great. There's, there's part of it. Very nice introduction, thank you. Um, and if I get this and then... You'd think I'd get this technology after a while. That looked like it? Not yet. Except you have the preview slide. Nope. Um, I think you didn't fully share it with us. Okay. Sorry about this. Damn, excuse me. Having... So if you have the green share screen button, you want to click that and then select your PowerPoint window. I did. And then you need to hit share again at the bottom. Okay. Okay. Great. Uh, except for, yep, okay. Getting closer? Yep. You have um, the preview window? Now we see your full slides. Is that, do you have your notes? That, huh? You see no notes or see notes? Nope, we see notes. This is perfect. Okay, great. Okay, um, takes me a little while with technology. I actually, um, these days, run a um, technology company, so it's, I guess, embarrassment sort of goes along with this. Um, but when you're giving that nice introduction, I was thinking back of uh, one of my teachers um, from Tufts. I did not go to Tufts, but um, Ron Thornton, who I think is still there, a physics professor, um, he was sitting on his back stoop one day and just thinking of giving his uh, students a, a question or so. And he looked up on his roof and he just was kind of scratching his head and just looking at that roof and just thinking if he could scrape 10% of the energy that fell off of it 
off the roof, uh, hmm, that would be his whole house. So he um, he worked with some other people at the um, Boston chapter of Nessie back then with a pass comp competition kind of uh, group where they um, were using calculators. I don't think we have the calculators like they were using today. Uh, we have more capacity on our phones, but um, they did a lot of neat um, calculations and stuff on, uh, on that. But what I'd like to try to do is <clears throat> give a little bit of um, what is kind of ACES's um, mission, and that's um, ACES is the American Solar Energy Society, and their mission is to um, help get the country and the world to use 100% um, renewables, to have 100% renewables be our um, economy. And um, I'd like to try to give a little bit of a roadmap to that, a few options, small and large, um, a little bit of the math to try to figure out what to, um, you know, how to at least do the back of the envelope and to not be surprised in magnitude because um, there's only so much sunlight that hits us. And um, it's good to have a little bit of perspective. And since this is half a student group, um, some of the math would be for the students to maybe deal with afterwards. But, so what does 100% um, renewables really mean? Um, as with a lot of energy efficiency things, energy efficiency, energy efficiency. As your energy audits you do uh, through the city of Medford, um, reduce first and um, efficiency is where we get most of our bang for a buck. Today, photovoltaics are um, the sexiest type of solar energy is almost magical, but an LED bulb compared to a incandescent is almost like a very inexpensive uh, photovoltaic cell. It's just not quite as sexy in that way. So try to um, show a few of the appropriate um, solar technologies. Um, but each time we take a look at it, we look through the lens of efficiency. And um, Amy Levins uh, runs the um, uh, a program on the Rocky Mountain Institute. And he was trained around here in Harvard and MIT. And he coined an expression of megawatt. And a kilowatt hour or a megawatt hour, megawatt meaning the energy that you didn't use. And they both equal the same amount of money on your uh, energy bill. Only thing is the megawatts are usually easier to um, come by than the kilowatts. It's easier to conserve than it is to produce. Um, and um, one of the things that and maybe we've been learning by this recent election. But um, a few elections ago, I was at a fundraiser and Al Gore was there. And it's one thing he taught me, it was the word urgency. So when we look at these things, we kind of look at these, try to figure out what can we actually move into our economies now so that we want to never forget that word urgency. Um, oops. Um, there's a number of different technologies across um, the world that are used for this, and some of you are familiar with um, on the larger scale, 
there's things like that tower power power um, concentrators in the upper left. Um, this was in Barstow, California. Um, community solar and fields of utility solar, like the uh, arrays in the upper right, which are in Dover, Mass. Wind has come from um, being small wind turbines, um, little house in the prairie kind of stuff, to being big house in the prairie and huge wind farms out in open spaces or ocean wind. And um, ocean and river power is being used. These are two shots of a um, ocean renewable power company up in Maine, and they now are deploying um, line tide um, systems. And there's a couple of shots of some um, photovoltaics on either fact on the factory in Massachusetts and in the community. Community solar is sometimes like that large array at the top, or sometimes it's many, um, many homes. When they're connected by the grid, in a way, they're sort of, they're not exactly a microgrid, but in a way they are sharing the same feeder line to the utility so that um, they are impacting it. And um, the more of those we have, um, has been referred to as dis distributed generation, um, the more, um, vibrant we had as a grid. Um, okay, I'm pushing the wrong button. Um, so when making any kind of assessment, it really comes down to um, load and understanding your load. So what are you gonna use this energy for? And when like the energy audit, the, the mass save audit, they come to your house and they um, measure how much you, you use, we want to go a little deeper than that and kind of understand the nuances and understand the opportunities for being able to optimize um, both energy efficiency resources as well as solar resource. So when you look at an energy bill, um, you want to look at the patterns. So you want to look at the year-long um, use, seasonal, uh, how that, you know, whether it's weekly or um, yearly seasons, it all matters how much space heating you're using. Uh, are you heating and cooling that building at the same time? Um, is there, are there opportunities for synergy between that? Um, do you heat a pool in the summertime and uh, heat the house in the wintertime if it's a house? Um, do you um, uh, exhaust more heat than you actually think you were doing? Um, energy audit might, um, or a lot of times people might say, okay, let's look at your hot water load. So how many people do you have? So if it's 15, 20 gallons a day per person, um, you raise it at a certain degrees. Let's say if you bring it in at um, 40 degrees and you raise it to 125 in your water heater and you take a shower or you sink at 105 and you send it down the drain at, <coughs> at 70, your net energy cost into the building is really different between the 40 and the 70. So at the same time you happen to use cold water and you happen to use, most people use twice as much cold water as they do hot water. So they bring it in at the same 40, they either leave it in a toilet or in a sink and then they flush it down the drain, it goes out at 60. So it's only a 20, <coughs> 20 degree rise compared to a 30 degree rise, but since you use twice as much 
cold water than you do hot water. You really, in New England in the wintertime, you more use more energy heating or processing cold water than you do hot water. So if you want to save energy, really concentrate on the cold water, which really means concentrate on all the water use because the water that goes through our buildings <coughs> is taking a lot of heat out of it and it costs a lot of energy to bring that in. So that looking at all these things at the same time gives you a chance to think of, do you have some opportunity for uh, heat recovery? If it's a um, house, it may not be unless it's new construction. Um, it may be more for something for um, uh, commercial buildings and things like that. Um, where, where there's enough energy to um, uh, to warrant <clears throat> to warrant a mechanical system, the solar industry has oftentimes gone towards it's been tax credit driven, and it needs to really be driven towards a load and larger loads um, make um, more opportunities. In that way. Um, there is some math. It does start with the sun, 93 million miles away. And then what they refer to as a solar constant is the amount of energy outside of the atmosphere. But then down on the planet, we have a certain amount, about 300 um, in the desert, clear sun, 250 per square foot here in Boston. Um, it, this perspective just means that you can't make a square foot of something that produces twice as much as that. There are a lot of salesmen who might like to have that, but um, it's kind of a uh, diffuse um, energy source, but there is a lot of energy in it. So in a square foot, you can collect um, 100 or 200,000 BTUs per square foot per year. So that means you can reap a gallon of oil through a south facing window. Um, it's um, easier to do it through sunlight than through the oil. So that, that um, just some figures on um, a, a back of the envelope, a crude back of the envelope for 800 gallons of oil off of a single family house. But <clears throat> heating's not, um, it, it doesn't produce as much um, energy per square foot as domestic hot water, mainly you could take the same system, but mainly because you're only using in the wintertime. So to optimize the equipment, year-round loads matter. So when you look at the load, you look at whether or not you're just, oh, I have two people living in this huge house and very expensive roof, so it's going to be very expensive collectors to install, whether it's PV or thermal. thermal. But we're always away in the summertime. So that means we never use any energy in the summertime, so we're not getting the benefit. So where I live in a wonderful treated area and you know it's only half shady and it's like the little kid with um you know they hold their hand up to their face and i can't see you, you know, they think the branches um only shade half of it uh, it's about as realistic as a little kid trying to hide behind a stick um if you have a half shaded collector whether it's pv or thermal you get half the output which means it costs you twice as much um, we need to deploy very well acting, um, very well performing systems. And um, all energy has the same um, cost for uh, BTU, depending on how the uh, pricing is. Um, oil and energy prices are incredibly volatile. It's the only, the main thing that I didn't realize when I got into this industry 40 years ago is how <clears throat> expletive 
deleted volatile they were. If you look at the volatility of the political scene, you can understand that um, how a lot of oil-driven um, pricing is in that. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, these are some numbers that since these slides are um, available, just some of the back of the envelope stuff for the amount of BTUs in different uh, things. The solar technologies um, I'd like to look at is some of the passive things. When I got into this business, uh, solar was a combination between passive or active solar and some photovoltaics. Now, it's, now people on the street mostly say it's just electric stuff, right? The photovoltaics, but um, passive is more like um, the architecture of the building, um, natural daylighting and passive heating. Um, some things that can be practical, some things that are kind of not. And the same is true with any of these technologies. Um, also, there's some active thermal systems, um, transpired collectors, which is a weird name for things, but um, nobody really knows what it means, at least not the people in the street. Um, so something as simple as pinholes on the south side of a building that use um, to bring in the makeup air. Um, don't get done, I'll show some slides of that in a minute. Um, and then in the electrical area, there's regular photovoltaic panels and um, there's also many hybrids that skim the heat off the panel, increasing the efficiency of the PV, as well as taking usable heat. Some of those are used with heat pumps, some of those are used directly. <coughs> um, in the wide thermal category, um, physically it is, um, it's more efficient as far as the amount of energy it takes off of the surface. So that if you have a roof, if you have a net zero building, you're trying to make it net zero, you're trying to skim as much energy off the building. You want to take, <coughs> excuse me, um, it's hard in Zoom things to have somebody pass you a glass of water these days, but um, in um, net zero, you only have a certain amount of energy that hits the building. So um, PV therms or PVT panels will become much more um, common on, um, on buildings. It will take a little bit longer before to be common on those fields, uh, community solar ones, unless they have a large load. In this country, we've not gotten to community um, um, energy where we have um, district heating. We have some district steam, but we don't have district hot water. In Europe, there's some um, places where there's um, district heating and cooling, where they have pipes running underneath the ground and big storage places that whether they're a um, big reservoir or a, um, a pit of clay where the heat's stored in, in the soil. Um, and um, so a little bit of a round robin here. In the upper left is a daylighting um, system uh, referred to as a solar staircase. It is a uh, roof. This happens to be in a dining hall at a school. Um, it's a roof where the tread is a reflector and the risers are a glazing and there's also multiple glaze glazings below it. So this it brings in um, daylight year round and in the wintertime when the sun's low in the sky, it brings in light and heats the building. In the summertime, it keeps that heating out of it. So there's not much. If we go around the top, the top is a 
<clears throat> um, typical flat plate collector, blackened surface heats up, very simple technology. It's actually been around 100 years or so. Off to the right, it's evacuated tubes, which is like a thermos bottle, which gets to a higher temperature. And below both of those are some arrays, some small commercial arrays in the Boston area. And off to the left, there, <clears throat> bottom left is a transpired solar um, wall collector, which is used for makeup air. In buildings, we like to breathe. I sometimes don't breathe enough, but you want to breathe. And in a building, you want to have uh, about 15 cubic feet per minute per person. So in the wintertime, it's zero outside. You want to be bringing in that cold air. <clears throat> no, you don't want to be bringing in cold air. You want to be able to bring in air to, to be heated. So what you do is you skim it off of that south wall. That south wall collector can, um, in Boston can typically um, reap about uh, one to two therms per square foot um, per year. It's, um, this, uh, this is a close-up of the, um, the solar staircase. That was done by Norm Saunders, who was um, an ACES uh, solar pioneer award uh, a number of years ago, and also uh, one of my teachers and worked with Ron. So this is a little bit more details of that. There are <clears throat> a few in the, in the Boston area, but not many. Um, sometimes things that you don't know that they're there, um, you don't, um, you just, they don't get replicated sometimes. It's just a little bit too simple. Um, it's one of, this, this is a apartment building in Cambridge um, with a solar wall and a penthouse of the roof. Uh, it was in discussion to be value engineered out. Um, they kept it in, but it's kind of sort of funny to have something that has a less than a five-year payback to be valued engineered out. It just it, when you can cut costs anytime, <clears throat> sometimes you just um, cut them. But what this basically is is um, sheet metal with perforations in it. It's very highly engineered. NREL, the National Renewable Laboratory, probably spent a million dollars on uh, research on it. They happened to do that after um, they realized that there was a Canadian company that had patented on it. But it's kind of neat to see at that time that egos did not get um, in the way that people still worked on, on the program because it is just such a um, energy saver in the way. So that um, it's very simple should be on any commercial building, any makeup area. It almost costs too much in talking time to do it on residential. Because in residential, if you're using, um, you put in about uh, at flow rates of maybe five CFM per square foot. So maybe you need a 50 or 100 square foot thing on a, on a house. So it wouldn't be costly enough to really have the marketing time of our conversation, a paying salesman, but it should just be there. It's like a heat recovery ventilator. This should be just a simple little piece that's just naturally put on and it will get that way. It does happen up in Canada more where it's colder winters. Um, um, Sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to give you a quick time check that we're at about a three minute warning here and we want to leave time for questions. Thanks. So, yeah, I didn't have a clock in front of me. Um, Thank you for doing that. Um, Summer bypass. They just bypass in the summertime. Um, and in the wintertime, it um, 
preheats the air so that instead of the zero degree, you bring in 50 degrees, you bring it in um, more than half what you have, but it's a very cheap way of doing it. Um, pool panels have been used for a long time. Sometimes the same kind of panels are used for um, um, large processing plants. Um, those evacuated tubes I showed you. Um, <laughs> in, the high, in the mid range temperature, um, this is a um, system down the Cape, um, the, um, uh, <clears throat> the mechanical part of it. So collectors in a roof, it's heating domestic hot water and also heating a pool. In that sizing thing, you know, that load, they really wanted it to heat the hot water, and they said, "Oh, you had a pool too." You know, but um, they end up figuring out afterwards. I mean, they, the installer was smart enough to be able to tell them to, you, know, you should, you get a pool. You should, we'll put in heat exchanger so you can do both. And um, <clears throat> so it turns out it maxes out the um, hot water storage for and covers all the hot water for the uh, domestic hot water. So after that, they end up just going to the pool. So they heat the storage tank in the daytime and then dump heat into the pool. And then later it um, um, heats domestic hot water. So I took a couple of shots today, <clears throat> earlier in the day, a shot of the monitoring. This is a monitoring program that shows um, actually actively what it's doing. So earlier in the day and then at, at um, <clears throat> me, about six o'clock, a little bit before this, saw that the, the storage tank, and this is an 800 gallon storage tank there, was still at 138 degrees. And so while the collector loop is off, it's pumping heat into the domestic hot water for the showers for the, um, the swimmers there. It's, um, it's a, a large Olympic sized school, I think. And, um, so they are able to do that after um, the fact. So um, in review, audit, really look at what you're doing. Um, address and understand the conservation um, and audit again. It's kind of like um, those kind of mantras there. Um, set your goals. Uh, are you trying to, um, what, what are you trying to, trying to do? Um, is it carbon? Um, sometimes people are looking at some biomass, but you really need to look at the biomass in a way. Are you taking something that would have otherwise um, gone into methane into the atmosphere, or are you doing some biomass that's a new feed crop that you know, so you're just kind of using a newer carbon compared to a fossil fuel carbon? Um, bottom line in why PV is um, so strong these days is the financing options um, and incentive options are um, very strong these days, particularly in photovoltaics, but they're um, available in um, for different thermal um, as well. If there's a good um, a good project, it's it's financeable. Um, so that was maybe my three. Was that my three minutes? Hey Henry, this is Bob Payne. I would like to thank you for your um, presentation. I do have a couple of follow up questions, and I think Luke has one. Yeah. Um, 
I was I was wondering if um, we are looking at in the next few years some revolutionary and advancements in solar in terms of one uh, efficient collection efficiency. Uh, I don't know if we've hit the, the sweet spot on that, and also storage of you know if you don't need it during the day, you need it at night. Can you store it? So, what are your opinions on those issues? If if in storage, there's some. Um it's a case of um, economy of um, dollars. Um, there are phase change materials, um, but um, right now, most of those are probably being used for cold storage more than they are for hot storage. Um, for air conditioning loads, um, there are storage packs that are kind of like the um, um, foil um, medical packs that are filled with phase change material that you can put in between your studs in commercial buildings, in between your studs or above, um, uh, above ceilings. And it enables you to um, cool buildings off and store that um, wrong form of um, technical English as far as, you don't really store coolness, but um, you um, allow heat to um, <clears throat> be, sucked out of the rest of the building. But phase change materials, there's more of a market for them to use it for cooling than it is for heating. But there are some who make a thermal battery kind of a cylinders um, more in Europe. And there's an English company that has um, a, um, some storage cells that I've been trying to get to bring them over here. Um, one of the things that was mentioned was uh, the Greentown Labs and, the, and, and there's some programs that they and Mass CEC have done where there's been some um, help to bring some uh, UK companies, startups here. Um, and um, I have hopes for that. But the economy, I mean, um, COVID has knocked a lot of stuff out of the energy. Um, it's, 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 um, we're not through that yet. Thank you. Uh, Luke, you had a question as well, right? Yeah. Thank you, Henry. That was really great. Um, and I appreciated one of the photos you showed of the solar thermal for the, uh, the pool heating at the executive residence down in Washington, D.C. Right. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, it was a previous administration. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I caught uh, just a part of what you had said about the transpired wall um, that you can collect on the south face up to about a therm per square foot. Um, is that over Actually, what over, over what yeah. over what period? Is that over an hour oh, or over over a year? Over a year. Uh, okay, okay. A therm per square foot. I mean, um, yeah. it is. Um, um, so I mean, if, if, it, if it's thermed, that's um, what a flat plates might do um, is they might collect um, maybe one and a half ish therms, mm -hmm. you know, per per square foot per year. Wow. <clears throat> so um, so at a hundred, um, let's say in round figures, a hundred dollars a square foot installed. Um, if you're lucky to be that low in a, a building in the city um, that 
um, the solar walls, transpired collectors might be installed at twenty dollars a square foot today. I'm, I'm guessing maybe it's twenty-five. But um, that wall that I showed was a blank, open, straight piece of wall. Yeah. If that wall had a whole bunch of windows in it, it'd be more expensive. So when you have a building that has a nice blanket south wall and you don't care about it and you need air, then, I mean, you do need air usually, that um, <clears throat> it's, it's cladding. It's, and as a penthouse, that was perfect. It was penthouse, but even on, on a, like on factory buildings, yeah. um, the first plants that I saw um, that um, I used to work with uh, Conserva a long time ago, um, they did it on factories and um, a neat thing that it did, and this is kind of an energy efficiency thing is they had um, some um, Ford plant or two up in um, Canada. And remember they had a, bat a battery plant, which is a need a lot of ventilation to get rid of that sulfuric fumes, you know, you just can't, can't breathe. So that this was able, enabled them to get a lot more makeup area and cheaply. They have a 60 foot high, high um, factory and you get amazing stratification in that. And you see these, go into these factories and you see these big fans that are blowing air down. And what they did was they bring, if you, so you have an air that's um, 55 at the floor and 95 up in the ceiling. And they had these big fans to try to bring it down. So instead of doing that, you bring in this, preheated outside air, zero outside, you bring it in at 50. 50 doesn't sound so great, but compared to zero, it's great. But you bring it in and you dump it in the top and you dump it in the top through these long ducts where it kind of sprinkles out. And it kind of, this is not the right English, but sort of heavies, it wanes the, the heat in the, the air that's up there. And they could de-stratify um, those building so they're down to just a, a few degrees you know per the whole building when you normally would have a couple degrees per meter so that it was a less expensive way to de-stratify and that way when you're de-stratifying that means you're reducing that that very high ceiling heat I mean the main thing you don't think the ceiling to be that high so you're pushing heat right out the ceiling so you want to bring it down so you're not only bringing it down to where people are so they can experience the heat but you're also stopping the expense is really the expense where you're sending it out. So um, buildings, if you're in the middle of a building, you can keep the room as high as you want. It really doesn't matter. It really matters on the outside. So you really, you're only paying for the energy you're pushing out through the walls or ceilings. So it's in that part that you're paying. So if you de-stratify, it's not just that, I mean, it's, it's, it has a lot of reasons for it that way. A lot of payback. If that makes sense. Thank you, Henry, again for your presentation. And uh, I think we have to move on to the next uh, presentation. Good. Um, I'm going to now, this is going to be about uh, instead of uh, uh, basically human made uh, solar collectors, this is going to be about natural solar collectors. And uh, Luke McNeely, uh, 
has worked with Loretta James. They are both members of the Medford Energy and Environment Committee on this presentation. Luke is the co-chair of the committee and he's a registered architect with in-depth experience in energy efficient, environmentally responsive design and the use of renewable energy in buildings. He's also a green building project manager at New Ecology Inc, a sustainable development nonprofit organization. I hope I have that right, Luke. Um, and actually, I, actually, it's been updated. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry, okay. mass save now, but thank right. you. Well, good. Okay, uh, and uh, sorry for that. Uh, no worries. Loretta is uh, experience in business management, sales, event organizing, and art and design, and she was president of the Massachusetts Elevator Safety Association on the board of directors of Mobius Artist Group and an owner of a service business. She has worked with the Massachusetts Department of Public Safety and other groups to promote their causes. And she has professional florist training from the Cass Florist School and is a Massachusetts real estate agent. So Luke, I'm gonna have you take over and present on the natural solar collectors. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Bob. And thank you, uh, uh, Sam, for helping to organize all this. I'm gonna share my screen here and uh, go into presentation mode, just a moment. Okay, hopefully you can see that. Um, uh, so thank you, yes, I, I am actually an architect uh, and to uh, Henry's point, um, I did renewable energy for a while um, and have moved into the energy efficiency side of architecture because that is truly one of the best ways to um, uh, reduce our uh, need for energy and then be able to make up the difference with renewable energy opportunities. Um, but I am also very interested in biology and as a part of the Medford Energy and Environment Committee, um, Loretta and I um, uh, dove into uh, a, a report on trees. Um, and so I'm gonna present a little bit of that today. Loretta unfortunately is unable to join us for this, um, uh, but she has been a critical player in developing uh, the report that I'll uh, describe briefly and uh, help for me to put this presentation together. Um, so as a part of the uh, Energy and Environment Committee, we established a tree advisory subcommittee in part because in our city of Medford, we've had a number of developments that have basically clear cut the land prior to um, actually getting permits. Um, and uh, on top of that, cities in general in the region are being well, very quickly developed. Um, and that does often mean there is a risk to the tree canopy, to vegetation uh, broadly. Um, and that has numerous impacts on the environment and ultimately upon us. And so we put together a report on the on public health and safety, uh, soil erosion and sediment control through a healthy tree canopy. And I'm just going to take you to uh, where you can indeed um, get a copy of this report if you are interested in it. Um, this is in fact uh, not specific to Medford, although uh, it is tailored to Medford. Um, 
And, but the information actually comes from all of our surrounding communities and could be applied uh, anywhere. But um, Medford Go Green website has put our report up onto the, uh, the website. You can view and download it uh, and uh, find out about all of the resources. Um, the key recommendations that were put into that report, uh, just a quick summary of that, really one of the first and, and foremost of those was to create a tree fund Medford actually has a tree fund currently, but it is very limited and restricted legally. And, uh, however, areas that have been successful in maintaining their canopies and, and vegetation have uh, a funding mechanism to help maintain that. Um, and a tree fund can act to accept payments and donations for the purpose of uh, helping uh, establish and uh, develop new programs, public education, maintenance of existing trees, and the planting of new trees. Um, creating a forestry website uh, that helps to disseminate this information and is a central location that the, um, the tree warden can help to coordinate uh, would be an excellent resource. Um, and importantly, putting together a formal ordinance uh, that does include a permitting process uh, to help limit the uh, free clear cutting and to help support uh, erosion control uh, first and foremost. Um, other uh, programs that are uh, uh, useful to this is also things like creating a landmark tree program where uh, significant trees are identified and uh, recognized. Um, increasing a forestry department budget so that uh, a uh, licensed arborist and some experienced crew can actually be on staff uh, rather than our current scenario in Medford where uh, they are hired and unfortunately temporary. Um, additional recommendations include putting together a tree inventory of the city um, so that we can know what is there and better work to maintain and uh, promote uh, new growth. And also to organize uh, other programs like a tree watering ambassador program that could be volunteer, junior forester programs that can engage students and uh, uh, citizens. Um, a wish list of things that are needed, um, but also importantly to educate staff and residents overall and best practices for care and maintenance. And I'll touch on that a little bit later. So if you'll forgive me, I'm going to actually start uh, uh, this with a little video. Um, uh, this is a great video that is referenced in our report. Um, and Pardon me, just a moment. Oh, I have to prepare myself a little better. Um, but uh, this will run for a few minutes uh, and we'll continue just after. Ow. What do you think? 
you're doing. The idea of talking trees has been capturing the human imagination for generations. Did you say something? My bark is worse than my bite. Okay, so maybe they don't talk to us, but it turns out trees can talk to each other. Trees are speaking to each other. But that does beg the question, what do trees have to talk about? And can we learn to speak their language? Underneath the soil, a vast and interconnected network of life links the trees through their root systems. But they can't talk to each other without help. The whole process starts with hub trees, the oldest and tallest trees in the forest. Hub trees have greater access to sunlight and through the process of photosynthesis, end up producing more sugar than they actually need. Underground, fungi need sugar to survive. Most of their bodies are made up of a mass of threads called mycelium. They grow within the root system of trees to absorb the excess sugar. In return, the mycelium provides the tree with the nutrients it needs from the soil. This symbiotic relationship is known as mycorrhiza, which stems from the Greek words for fungus and root. These tree-fungi relationships connect the trees in the forest together forming an underground communication network to exchange water and nutrients, to nurture their seedlings, and even send warning signals when under threat. So, how many trees are really talking to each other? To get a better picture of these forest relationships, a team of researchers used DNA analysis to map a fungal network in a patch of Canadian forest. Remarkably, they found that one tree was connected to 47 other trees. Their models also showed that when hub trees were removed, it would cause more connections to be lost than if trees were simply removed randomly. Studying these kinds of underground exchanges will play a vital role in creating stronger, more resilient forests for the future. So even though we might not be able to talk to trees, at least we can still keep trying to understand their language. Who knows what they might say. found that as interesting as I have. Um, that gets to uh, the point that trees are interconnected. Um, and uh, as in some respects, all life is. Um, and it is uh, well uh, described and uh, discussed in The Hidden Life of Trees a wonderful book by Peter Wolben, um, uh, and I highly recommend it. But it gets to uh, some of the benefits of trees as well. So 
Trees play a critical role in our environment, as I'm sure everybody is aware, um, but we often disregard that when they are in our way and we uh, want more space so we want to uh, clean things up and uh, get rid of that shrubbery. Um, but it is important to recognize that there are benefits uh, that come from having trees around, that come from having considerable uh, numbers of trees uh, in relation to each other. Um, and obviously there are places that uh, uh, it's easier to do that than others. Um, but just some of the things to consider even around your own home, uh, shading from summer sun. When the sun is blazing, having a tree near your home can be an excellent uh, uh, cooling mechanism. It unfortunately does get in the way of any solar production potential, um, but again, that is something that can be uh, mitigated or, or arranged with careful thinking and planning. Um, a tree can actually cool their local environment uh, by up to 10 degrees Fahrenheit. So on those 100 degree days, uh, shade of, an, of a nearby tree, especially a, a grouping of trees is considerably cooler. Um, trees also act to baffle sound uh, and help to muffle uh, the sounds of the surrounding environment. Very importantly, their roots also really hold the soil and help to prevent soil erosion. Um, uh, in addition, you, many people would argue, I certainly would, that trees help to beautify neighborhoods. They add character. Um, uh, at the same time, they are absorbing significant amounts of water. A mature tree can uh, drink many hundreds, uh, thousands of gallons of water, um, uh, which reduces flood risk. And in addition, they help to filter our air. Uh, it's funny, we, we spend a lot of money actually uh, when we try to bring fresh air into our houses uh, or businesses. Um, and go through a lot of uh, technical uh, approaches to get clean, fresh air. Um, so technology replicates what nature can do to a certain extent, but requires energy, maintenance, and money, uh, often to achieve fewer benefits. And then there is this minor little detail, <laughs> trees along with all of the other vegetation, um, uh, produce oxygen for us to all enjoy. Um, it just takes the six molecules of carbon dioxide and six molecules of water, a little bit of sunlight energy, um, and uh, the trees uh, through photosynthesis produce sugars, which as you saw in that video, um, help to feed both the tree and the uh, mycorrhiza, the soil, um, fungi, um, and they also off-gas their oxygen. They, they give off oxygen as a byproduct of that. Um, we, as uh, human beings, uh, breathe about uh, 100 kilograms uh, of, uh, sorry, about uh, 10 tons of air 
uh, of oxygen per year. Um, a tree can produce about 100 kilograms of oxygen per year. So it takes about uh, uh, seven to eight mature trees to produce enough oxygen uh, for a human to breathe in a year. Um, forgive me, I may have bungled that math a little bit, but um, uh, essentially uh, it's, uh, yeah, 1600 pounds of oxygen per human per year. Um, so seven to eight trees worth. If you look around, uh, there are places where you can certainly find seven to eight trees per person, um, but there are many places in the world where you can't, uh, many places even right around here. Um, while other plants play significant roles in producing oxygen as well, um, trees are significant contributors. So just Taking a look at this nice tree-lined uh, walkway in uh, Europe, uh, as an example, tree-lined streets and walkways provide vistas, color, wildlife habitat, while providing clean, fresh air, cooling, and uh, helping to uh, improve the environment overall. An example of what can happen when we reduce our tree cover and vegetation. Um, heat island effect is a uh, uh, unfortunate byproduct of removing vegetation. Um, uh, impervious surf surfaces like concrete, asphalt, black tar, um, absorb solar radiation and then give that uh, radiation off as heat um, throughout the day and into the night. Um, the red zones here in this map uh, are uh, hot spots. Um, as it gets down into the yellow and green, those are cooler uh, areas. Um, Medford is up here in this uh, uh, upper segment and zooming in on that. Um, this is actually a different map. It is not a heat map. This is a map that was produced during the previous um, mayor's administration uh, by our um, uh, forestry department, public of De Department of Public Works Forestry Division. Um, and the red represents the percent, uh, or the colors represent the percent of tree cover uh, in uh, assessor's parcels in Medford, and zero to 10%, for instance, is depicted in red. So this is an area that has essentially zero trees. Um, uh, as we get up into the green, this is where we have 90 to 100% of coverage, and this is the Middlesex Fells up here. And so you can see Medford is, uh, while we have a wonderful resource of, of good coverage, uh, we also have substantial areas of uh, no cover. Um, backing up just one, notice that we aren't in the worst red heat island effect area, but neighboring areas like Everett certainly are, and it does happen kind of all over Boston and all over the US. Um, 
So this is something that can be mitigated by uh, uh, just careful planning. So there are some simple things that we can do like supporting programs to promote uh, appropriate planting and maintenance, maintaining the trees that we have. Uh, that can include things like avoiding mulch mountains. I, I'll show you what that is in just a moment. Uh, keeping significant trees together. Uh, trees do work to support each other and being able to have them be close enough to have networks is, is helpful to them. Uh, reducing the amount of impervious surfaces that we uh, plan and build. And requiring some minimum landscape design standards for new development so that when new construction is coming in, there is some care to the amount of impervious surface, to the amount of vegetation, and to the potential for trees. So I promised a little description of a mulch mountain. Here it is. Uh, this is oftentimes a, a landscaper's approach to caring for uh, the uh, local landscape. Um, it looks neat. Uh, it is pretty, um, I, I wouldn't call this pretty, but uh, the, the green and the brown looks stark. Uh, unfortunately, it can lead to this. Uh, this tree was rotted out by the significant amount of mulch that uh, kept being piled against its uh, trunk. And it really is a uh, simple matter of doing proper mulching at the proper time um, and maintaining the tree's natural uh, uh, ability to uh, keep its bark um, uh, dry and uh, clean. So we talked a little bit at the beginning about uh, program ideas and I'm just going to kind of close on a few of those. Um, uh, volunteers, uh, community organizations, uh, local governments, we would love to see perhaps some kind of a consortium of neighboring uh, cities and organizations working together to uh, promote good ideas and good programs and good ordinances uh, that can be adopted uh, kind of broadly. Um, but junior foresters, again, the tree fund, tree inventories, which can be done again by just about any group um, landmark trees uh, and the watering ambassador program. And another one, a memorial tree program, uh, uh, something to memorialize pets uh, and potentially people um, uh, is not a, a bad idea, just to give some significance to potentially significant uh, trees. I will leave you with just some additional thoughts um, that we should install or allow for more permeable surfaces, reducing impervious surf surfaces like black tar, asphalt, and concrete, especially those near trees um, so that they can absorb more rainwater and reduce flooding. Um, keeping in mind that significant and mature trees help to prevent flooding, uh, drinking up 
many gallons of water from each rainfall event um, and slowing down heavy rainfall, filtering the water uh, that goes into the storm drains uh, while the roots are preventing erosion, uh, holding the soils in place. And that significant and mature trees that are close together support each other. And when we remove uh, those trees, uh, that endangers the ones that are remaining. And lastly, uh, a healthy mature tree canopy provides our greatest environmental be benefits. So supporting our mature trees uh, is very important and new trees that are planted can take well over 20 years to establish similar kinds of networks to support themselves and, and uh, thrive. Um, if anyone is interested in more, there's a wonderful video by Dr. Randy Rajan, uh, who is uh, a board member of the Friends of the Fells um, uh, on supporting native wildlife in your own backyard forest, one yard at a time. Uh, it is an hour long video, um, but with a lot of great information in it. And that is available on the Medford Community Media. Um, website. Uh, with that, I just want to thank some of the excellent help that we've gotten. Uh, a Tufts grad student who was also an intern at the um, City of Medford Energy and Environment Office under Alicia Hunt. Uh, Carolyn Mecklenburg, she did a tremendous amount for our report. Curtis Tudin, former uh, chairman a uh, person of the Medford Energy and Environment Committee also contributed significantly. Um, the Energy and Environment Committee themselves have been wonderful supporters. Uh, and the city engineer, Timothy McGivern, gave excellent advice, as well as certainly the guidance and support um, from Aggie Tudin, our tree warden. And with that, I am happy to accept any questions. Ellie, uh, do you have any? I, I might have one or two for uh, Luke. There are some questions that came in in the um, question and answer, which is great. Thanks so much, Luke. Um, and Luke, I don't know if you can see, you should be able to see that yourself if you want to go through them or I can um, read them to you. I would need to take down my slides, it looks like. Uh, I'll so just, I'm going to. I can read them to you as well. Um, okay. So we've got the first one. Um, came in from Zach Gordon, who wants to know, is there a city process in place for replacing trees on residential streets that are removed, such as for utility work, et cetera? There is, unfortunately, that gets to some of the recommendations in our uh, tree report. Uh, the city is overwhelmed with the need to maintain and replace trees uh, but they don't have the staff, the, the money or the time to do that. Um, and so while the process exists, um, it is uh, priorities are that they, they have to just take care of the things that they can in the order that they've come. Um, and so it may take considerable time to, to get to that. That does bring up an excellent other point and that is that um, Natural gas leaks uh, are also a significant concern um, that impact trees and vegetation. 
can kill many trees. And unfortunately, many trees that have been invested in and planted uh, for new construction and around the city have died because they've been unfortunately too close to natural gas lines that have been leaking. And so that is something that needs to be uh, worked on. Um, hopefully that answered your question, but. Thank you. Um, yep, and then there's another one from Amy Ronaldo who asked, is climate change already affecting the health um, of native trees in our area? If so, is there anything to be done other than slowing climate change or will we be looking at a change in the types of trees that grow in this area? That is a great question. I, I think that climate change is certainly impacting our native trees, uh, possibly in terms of temperature, but more likely in terms of uh, occasions of drought. We had a considerable dry spell this summer and previous summer, um, but also in terms of invasive species. So um, many uh, insects that uh, are coming not only from outside of the U.S., as occasionally does happen, but also from other climate areas of the U.S. So uh, the woolly adelgid, for instance, uh, attacks is a tiny little bug that attacks hemlock trees um, and has been migrating north as the temperatures have become more suitable for it uh, in the north. And so hemlock trees, which had been sturdy northern trees for many, many generations, uh, are now being decimated by the woolly adelgid. Um, there are many other trees that have similar issues. Uh, and so insects uh, migrating with climate changes um, uh, find all of this kind of fresh uh, 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 opportunity to attack trees that are frankly uh, underprepared for them because they haven't evolved with them. Uh, and in terms of dealing with that, uh, I, I don't have a great answer other than um, it helps to pay attention to those kinds of things and, and try to deal with the root problem. Uh, I don't think that there are any band-aids really. Well, maybe there are a few, but. Awesome. Um, and I just want to um, point out since this is being recorded and I don't think that that the uh, Q&A will be captured, but um, Ken Krause had written in as well to say, thanks for the presentation. Just wanted to make sure people know that there is a Medford community organization, organization excuse me, Trees Medford, working mm -hmm. for many of the ideas that are recommended in your report. Yes. More information can be found on their website, treesmedford.org and the Facebook page. So for folks um, in this webinar right Thank now, you. you can see that and check out the link in the um, Q&A box, but I wanted to read that out loud for um, anybody watching this um, afterwards. Thank you, Allie, and thank you, Ken. That is a great point. Yes, um, we didn't coordinate with Trees Medford on the report or on, on this uh, presentation per se, uh, but I do know that Trees Medford as a separate community group has done a ton of work on um, uh, moving 
the agenda of, of protecting trees and, and improving trees in, in the neighborhood and in the city. Um, and they have uh, been uh, championing uh, getting a lot of the work of that report done. So thank you. And then um, there is an attendee who's got a hand up, um, Sarah Gerald, excuse me if I said that wrong. Um, I'm gonna unmute you, Sarah, if you'd like to um, ask a question. You should be able to talk now. Hi, um, yes, actually I am co-chairing Trees Medford and thank you very much for that little plug. Um, if you hadn't done it, I, I would have something to say. <laughs> Sorry about that. So, you feel free to go ahead anyway. Yeah, but we, we are doing a lot of work now. Um, we've developed a new part of our website which um, in which we're going to be able to facilitate the Adopt-a-Tree program. So um, en enabling people to uh, sign up for individual trees that need adoption it has a wonderful map of all the new trees that have been planted and people can uh, sign up there. We're also working on um, uh, getting money for an inventory. We recently got money for a tree inventory for um, the uh, cemetery. And uh, so we'll be working with them on their master plan once we have that inventory completed. We've also done an inventory in, in one of the environmental justice areas of Medford and we're working on getting more money for um, an inventory on uh, and uh, on the rest of the environmental justice areas and money for more trees in those areas. So these environmental justice areas are the areas that um, you were mentioning were the least treed of the areas in Medford. So anyway, and we're very interested in, in more people to help us out. We've got a fabulous Girl Scout group who is just completely energized and they are they are on fire. They've really been so helpful and so active. It's really great. We're really thrilled to have them join us. That um, is awesome. Yeah. And I just want to add the, the Medford Energy and Environment Committee fully supports your tree inventory uh, 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 work there. Great. Thank you. Great. Uh, thank, thank you, Luke. Uh, is, is, I think we uh, have you any other questions? Are we um, through those? Yep, there's one more question in the Q&A box uh, from Lois Grossman who asked, can trees remediate drought? Trees, uh, so drought is an environmental issue that is broader than the local environment. Um, and so extended drought can certainly kill off trees uh, just as well as smaller plants. Um, that said, trees have incredible capability of storing water. Um, and so drought is more prevalent in locations that have fewer trees. Uh, trees, uh, forested areas um, essentially can keep their local microclimate more uh, humid and more um, uh, moist generally um, than areas that don't have any trees. Uh, where uh, farmland has been cleared, where development has been cleared, those areas when you have extended dry spells, the soils get extremely dry 
and ultimately this is how deserts are formed uh, when when the plant life um, isn't doesn't have the the moisture storage capacity um, to keep the soils moist and there are extended dry spells um, the soils dry up and uh, it becomes difficult for the plants to survive in them so in in some respect yes the uh, maintaining a healthy tree canopy maintaining healthy vegetation uh, does help to mitigate um, uh, drought conditions but it's not a it, it's a relationship it's not like it just is a simple plant more trees and there will be no drought so all right thank you luke um I think it's time to move on then to our final presenters uh, on the issue of future transportation. Uh, this will be presented by Allison Felix and Cassia Hart. They, they work for the Metropolitan Area Planning Council. Allison is a senior transportation planner and emerging technology specialist with the transportation department at the Metropolitan Area Planning Council. Her projects focus on how the use of new technologies impact the roadway network, how they can enhance transit and reduce emissions. And her areas of expertise include autonomous vehicles, ride hailing vehicle technologies and researching best practices in transportation planning. Cassie Hart is a policy analyst with the Government Affairs Department at the MAPC. Uh, as part of the Government Affairs team, she works with internal departments to identify and advocate of the legislative and budget priorities through each legislative session. Cassie focuses on transportation-related initiatives and legislation and coordinates the agency's municipal and regional engagement efforts around the transportation and climate initiative. So I'm gonna now pass the baton to them. Great, thank you so much, Bob, really appreciate it. And thank you so much to the Medford Energy and Environment Committee and the Tufts Energy Group for putting this symposium on tonight. I think there's been some really interesting presentations so far. I know I've certainly learned a lot. Um, my name again is Kasha Hart. I'm with Metropolitan Area Planning Council with our government affairs team. I'm joined tonight by my colleague, Allison Felix with our transportation department. And we tonight are just going to share some strategies for building a low carbon transportation future. Um, Allison, you can go to the next slide. Sorry. Perfect. So just to provide a quick overview of what we'd like to cover tonight, um, we just want to provide a quick summary of some of the ongoing regional and statewide efforts to reduce emissions from the transportation sector. Um, Allison will then talk about how um, transportation looks a little bit different right now, given the, you know, the moment that we're in with the pandemic. And then finally, we'll conclude by talking about some local and statewide strategies that can be pursued to reduce emissions from the, the transportation sector, some of which are already underway. Um, next slide. So again, just wanna you know, provide an overview of who we are. So MAPC is the regional planning agency serving 101 cities and towns of Eastern Massachusetts. We perform a lot of core planning functions that would be typical to a planning agency, such as land use planning and zoning work, transportation planning, certainly, 
We also have some newer departments, our public health and our clean energy departments are newer. Our arts and culture department is newer. Um, we have a really robust data services team that does a lot of research and analytical work. They've made a map you see on your screen. They've made plenty more maps. Um, and again, I'm part of our government affairs team. So we do a lot of the, the advocacy and the policy work of the agency. One of our you know, core obligations as a regional planning agency is to do a plan for the region. And we are actually in the midst of that effort right now. It's called Metro Common 2050. Um, if you Google that, you can go find anything you've ever wanted to know about regional planning. Um, and I will say climate change mitigation and resiliency is going to be a core component of, of that plan. So there's some exciting opportunities to get involved there. Um, so highly recommend you check that out. Next slide. So again, just wanna go over some ongoing efforts to reduce emissions from transportation at both the statewide and regional level. Um, next slide. I do just wanna emphasize that transportation is the largest source of emissions in the Commonwealth. And while we've made really good progress reducing GHG emissions on the whole, a lot of that progress has come in the energy efficiency side of things. Transportation is just a really difficult sector to decarbonize. And I will say that's not, you know, unique to Massachusetts. It's really a system, a system-wide concern. Next slide. So Massachusetts is statutorily required to reduce uh, GHG emissions through the Global Warming Solutions Act. MEPC is actually part of the Implementation Advisory Committee, which is the advisory body that is helping guide the Executive Office of Energy and Environmental Affairs as to how these goals will be achieved. And I do also just want to note that earlier this year, Governor Baker issued a determination that would go even further than what's statutorily required. And so his administration would require that the Commonwealth reduce emissions to, to net zero by, by 2050. Next slide. So another effort that MAPC was a part of was the Commission on the Future of Transportation. So this was a group that was devising recommendations for how the Commonwealth should prepare our transportation system to meet the changes that are going to come down the pipeline when it comes to technology, climate, land use, and the economy. This group produced um, a number of really interesting recommendations back in, in 2018 at the end of 2018. And um, if you're interested in, in delving deeper in some of their suggested solutions, I, I highly recommend you, you check that out as well. Next slide. And then one last statewide effort I, I just wanna highlight, I imagine many folks on, on this call are, are familiar, um, and that's the Complete Streets Initiative. So Medford has you know, taken great advantage of this program. I know I've seen a lot of projects constructed through the Complete, Complete Streets program. Um, this is an effort out of MassDOT, and it's a technical assistance program and a construction funding program, um, largely centered on pedestrian and bicycle safety projects. Um, and it's seen really widespread use throughout the Commonwealth, which is great. Next slide. So Massachusetts, you know, isn't, isn't going this alone. We know our transportation system doesn't necessarily know municipal or, or statewide boundaries. So the Commonwealth is part of a number of regional efforts to reduce emissions from transportation. In 2013, governors of nine states signed on to the zero emission vehicle MOU, which in, in that document, 
Massachusetts committed to having 300,000 zero emission vehicles in the Commonwealth by 2025. It's coming out fast. And then earlier this year, Massachusetts joined a, a number of other states in signing on to a medium and heavy duty um, MOU, which would require that um, the Commonwealth reduce, uh, have, tw- have 30% of zero emission, medium and heavy duty vehicles by 2030. And then 100% of sales of medium and heavy duty vehicles would have to be zero emission by 2050. I think one thing that is kind of exciting about this effort and the number of states that are involved is that it could help sort of sway the market to move in this you know, more, more sustainable direction. Next slide. And then finally, the last regional policy that I'd like to highlight is the Transportation and Climate Initiative. This is an effort among Northeast and Mid-Atlantic states, as well as DC, to reduce emissions um, from the transportation sector through a regional cap and invest program. And the revenues generated from that program would be allocated to different low and no carbon transportation investments in in the region. Um, This has been going on for a long time, but with really a concerted effort picking up in December 2018 at this point. Um, we're expecting a final MOU um, to be signed among the participating jurisdictions later this, this year. Next slide. So now I'm going to turn things over to Allison, who will speak a little bit more about what our transportation looks like today. Great. Thank you, Kasha. I'm Allison Felix. I'm a senior transportation planner and point person for emerging technologies with MAPC. And now I will give an overview of the transportation world we now live in since the onset of the pandemic earlier this year. So since the pandemic began in March, ridership on the MBTA has fallen significantly, but as you can see on this chart, it is slowly recovering. Um, This chart shows ridership up until the end of October, and it also shows all transportation modes, bus, commuter rail, and subway. So a similar pattern has been observed with the amount of traffic on roadways. This chart shows that while vehicular traffic remains suppressed in Middlesex, Suffolk, Essex, and Norfolk counties, it is closer to returning to pre-pandemic levels. But what's important to mention is that traffic is most likely not returning to normal traffic conditions in the foreseeable future. A recent national study found that the pandemic has affected commuter patterns in that morning and evening rush hour traffic is more spread out during the day. And this change is most likely triggered by increases in working from home, staggered work hours, and people running errands during the day. Also, schools transitioning to a combination of remote and in-person learning could also be a contributing factor. Also, since the pandemic, the number of ride-hailing trips from companies such as Uber and Lyft have significantly declined. However, these companies have successfully pivoted to food delivery services. For example, deliveries for Uber Eats has more than doubled. So 
Also, there is currently a surge in walking and biking in most municipalities throughout the state. Overall, walking and biking trips are longer than they were before the pandemic, but most of these trips are for recreation than for commuting purposes. Um, similar to public transit and vehicular trips, Blue Bikes rentals experienced a sharp decrease in mid-March, but trips significantly increased starting in May and have fully recovered by, the, by this past summer. And in fact, it is forecast that Blue Bikes rentals will surpass 2019 numbers by the end of this year. And in mid-July, Mass Inc. conducted a survey and found that Massachusetts residents say they will probably be making fewer trips as the state emerges from the pandemic, but more of these trips will be by themselves, by driving, walking, or biking. The survey results also found that many plan to use public transit less. So other trends that MAPC is following is the growth of e-commerce, which is impacting both the state's transportation networks and land uses. These impacts include increased traffic and emissions associated with delivery vehicles and greater competition for curb space while deliveries are being made. The Census Bureau estimates that e-commerce comprises 16% of total retail sales. So while most retail sales are still made in person, the growth in e-commerce has more than doubled in the past five years and also has accelerated due to the pandemic. And this trend shows no indication of changing. However, e-commerce logistics and delivery companies such as Amazon, Walmart and UPS are aware of these impacts and have recently announced goals to attain carbon neutrality and are making significant investments in electric delivery vans and trucks. MAPC is continuing to closely follow this trend. So now I'll talk about strategies on the local and statewide level to reduce transportation emissions. So unlike most all other vehicle types, electric vehicles have zero tailpipe emissions. Electric vehicles also have the lowest carbon footprint and are considered to be the most cost effective. The forecast is for large growth in the electric vehicle market globally. According to a recent study by Bloomberg, 57% of all passenger vehicle sales and over 30% of the global passenger vehicle fleet will be electric by 2040. And Massachusetts offers programs to incentivize eligible public entities to acquire electric vehicles and charging stations. MassDEP administers a Mass EVIP fleet program and a program to purchase charging stations for multi-unit dwellings and at workplaces. Both National Grid and Eversource offer Make Ready programs, which provide funding for electrical conduit installations. The Make Ready programs and the Mass EVIP charging station programs complement each other as one provides the conduit and the other provides the charging equipment. Also, several years ago, uh, VW was found guilty of an emission scandal 
and as a result is required to advance and fund electrification programs nationwide. And through the VW settlement, Massachusetts will be, is going to receive $75 million over the next 15 years. Phase one of the VW settlement included a public access charging incentives program for the acquisition of EV charging stations. This program is recently currently closed, but future funding is expected to be announced as part of phase two. Also, there are state incentives and purchasing options for residents who are looking to purchase electric vehicles. Through the More EV program, Massachusetts residents can receive a $2,500 rebate along with available federal tax credits. There is also a draft proposal under review to include medium and heavy duty trucks in the More EV program. Also, the nonprofit Green Energy Consumers Alliance is a valuable resource for residents looking to purchase an electric vehicle at a discounted rate. In addition, the MBTA is also addressing the challenges of acquiring all electric battery powered buses and designing bus maintenance facilities to accommodate electric buses. So, what is Medfair doing in this space? Um, the city has recently installed EV charging stations at the high school and at City Hall. Um, the city is also an active participant on MAPC's EV, excuse me, regional EV strategy group. And this group meets to generate creative multi-community solutions to the opportunities and challenges posed by increasing adoption of electric vehicles across the MAPC region. So while electrification is critical to reducing emissions, we can't rely exclusively on electric vehicles alone. It is also imperative to advance public transportation, walking and bicycle use to reduce emissions. Medford also has public transit, walking and biking programs underway that facilitate travel, avoiding the need to drive. One key public transit improvement is the extension of the Green Line from Leechmere Station to the hillside area of Medford. The Green Line extension will provide service in areas that historically did not have access to fast and reliable public transit. And this is expected to significantly reduce vehicle emissions. This project is expected to be complete by the end of next year. Also design for the Clippership connector is underway. And when complete, the half mile long shared use trail will extend from Clippership Drive, pass under I-93 and connect to Riverbend Park, establishing a critical link for the Mystic River Greenway. And the city also has a practice of reviewing the city's bicycle plan when roadway repaving and restriping projects are implemented. Also um, launched in early June and administered through the Massachusetts Department of Transportation, the Shared Streets and Spaces Grant Program supports projects that promote public health, safe mobility and renewed commerce by quickly providing new or repurposed space for socially distanced walking, biking, dining, retail and bus travel. 
almost one third of municipalities across the state have benefited from this grant program so far. And from this program, the city of Medford was, or is the recipient of four grant programs. One is a Safe Routes to School initiative for Columbus Elementary School. Another is options for outdoor dining. And there are two projects that are underway in collaboration with the city of Somerville, which is a dedicated bike lane on Mystic Avenue and protected bike lanes for Wellington Bridge. Due to the success of this program and because municipalities are still in urgent need of support to help manage the impacts of the pandemic during the winter months, MassDOT recently launched a new phase of the program called Shared Winter Streets and Spaces. Shared Winter Streets and Spaces will focus on facilitating outdoor activities and winter programming by creating safe spaces for people of all ages and abilities to walk, bike, eat, shop, play, and enjoy community events. So now I'll turn the presentation back to Kasha, who will conclude with a discussion about how land use and transportation are interrelated and impact climate change. Great, thank you, Alice. And um, just a quick flag too, I think the view on the slides have changed. It looks like they're widescreen, so. Oh. Sorry. Okay. No, no, it's totally uh, fine. Just ho hopefully folks can, can see. Um, okay. If not, we can try to get that, that sorted out. I wasn't sure if that was just my computer either. Yeah. I, oh, that's that perfect. Better? Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Um, yeah, no, thank you, Allison. So I think sometimes when we talk about reducing emissions from the transportation sector, the conversation is often very centered on ele electrification. And while we will not be able to achieve any of our, our climate goals without widespread electrification and, and adoption of, of electric vehicles, um, I think it's also really important to, to focus on the strategies around you know, alleviating the need to get around with a private vehicle. So that includes investing in, in public transit and walking, biking, walking and biking infrastructure, as Allison highlighted. But um, land use planning actually really big role to play as well and a really big role to play in how far we drive and how much we actually need to rely on our car. So where we invest in our transportation infrastructure is directly related to where demand for housing and jobs is going to fall. I think that the Green Line extension is a very good example of that. And then in turn, housing and job centers fuel transportation demand. So it is this sort of virtuous cycle that happens. Unfortunately, cities and towns actually have a lot of tools at their disposal, namely through zoning and local policy, to make land use decisions that will help encourage more sustainable transportation options. And again, you know, reduce the, the need to rely on, on a private vehicle. Uh, next slide. So just quickly, one existing state program that I want to make sure to highlight is Chapter 40R. This is run through the Department of Housing and Community Development. And it encourages communities to adopt smart growth overlay zoning districts, which among a few other things, encourages the production of low and moderate income housing in smart growth locations, including near transit stations. And so once a municipality adopts a 40R overlay district, they become eligible for 40R payments and other different kinds of financial incentives. Next slide. So we talk a lot about parking at MAPC 
And parking has, you know, a really big role to play when it comes to um, transportation emissions. So one way cities and towns can influence how much people need to drive in order to get through town is through how much parking we require developers to build. So we did a really large body of work a couple of years ago, looking at how much parking was actually supplied and demanded at 200 multifamily buildings across Metro Boston. A few of the sites we surveyed were located in Medford. And we found that parking was regularly oversupplied well beyond what was actually demanded uh, at most multifamily, so apartment and condo buildings. Um, We did a deeper dive. We did some statistical analysis to better understand well, what are the factors that influence parking demand? It was actually parking supply. So what we like to say as part of the study is that if you build it, they will come. You want to go to the next slide? So typically, you know, what we say is if you build a lot of parking, you're more likely to attract car owning households and develop in a way that's more accommodating to driving. And Overbuilt parking contributes to a whole slew of issues from traffic congestion and pollution to just an overall higher cost of living. But if we align our parking requirements with what is actually demanded, how much parking residents actually need based on transportation alternatives available and other factors, we can reduce housing costs, we can make more land available for housing for open space and housing units, and we can just overall encourage more, more vibrant and livable communities. Um, so parking is a really big piece of this puzzle that we wanna make sure to highlight in, in these conversations. Next slide. And then quickly, since I know, you know we're coming up on time, but I do just wanna highlight one, one other effort and that is transportation demand management. So cities and towns can adopt TDM ordinances and bylaws that help reduce the transportation, really the traffic impact of new developments. And that can be anything from requiring bicycle parking on site to, you know, having developers um, have their site join a transportation management association, which provides things like shuttle services um, or offering T passes to residents and employees. Last slide. Um, so one, you know, forthcoming opportunity that I want to highlight for folks, I'm sure folks are, are aware, um, but I think one way you can plug in locally if this idea of zoning as a tool for advancing climate change resonates with you is um, Medford's forthcoming comprehensive planning process. This is going to be built on a number of really great planning efforts already completed and and underway. Um, But I I hope I've convinced you that zoning is actually um, a really powerful tool that cities and towns have at their disposal in terms of reducing emissions uh, from the transportation sector. And of course, as hopefully we've conveyed, um, there's a lot of other avenues to, to pursue as well. We have one more slide. Um, so that's it for us. We're happy to answer any questions or um, hear, hear your thoughts too on, on this issue, but thanks so much for making time to, for us today. So Ellie, do we have questions for them? Oh yes, they're starting to come in. Um, I've got a question from Ken Krauss, uh, who asked, what are the best opportunities and prospects for reducing the harmful emissions from the diesel commuter rail locomotives? And is electrification of the entire commuter rail system someday a possibility? I certainly think it is. I like to hope that it is. Um, I'm, you know, folks are probably aware that the T recently underwent a, a 
their rail vision process. So envisioning what the future of that commuter rail will look like. And, and that was something that was certainly elevated in the discussion. I think, you know, as we, we look ahead to 2021 and the possible of a federal infrastructure stimulus package becomes available, I, I, I'm hopeful that, you know, investments related to electrifying our transportation system are, are part of the, the solution. So um, I, I hope that's the case. I think that is a, a really big, big piece of, of decarbonizing the transportation sector. If I might add to that, so I'm going to drop a link in the chat um, for the MBTA forging ahead. And that is where mm -hmm. they're talking about what they need to cut back because of the pandemic. However, in the conversations that we have and in many of the slideshows they present, they talk about the different things, what it would cost to put them back. And one of those things is electrification of the system, and in particular, electrification of commuter rail. So it's one of those things that's sort of on the table under discussion right now as part of their forging ahead program. So I would encourage people to share with the MBTA your thoughts on this matter. I'll give you the link. Okay, great. Thanks, Alicia. And just to quickly add to that, my understanding is that there are public meetings underway right now as we speak. So there's there's an opportunity to attend these meetings and also to um, submit comments. Yes, there is. And in fact, the one that is called Mystic River Region is not actually the Medford Region. That's the one that's tonight. Um, okay. It's actually for a little further west. They already had one that they considered Medford part of the Minuteman region, um, but there are other broader meetings and on this forging ahead page is a whole, they're probably holding, it looks like 20 meetings all together about this to get input from residents. And they have ways that you can provide the input. You can watch the videos online and provide the input without attending the meeting. There's another question um, in the chat, actually two of them from Martha Andres, who asked, how is MAPC engaging with bus service, which is important in Medford, especially in light of the MBTA's pending cuts in bus service? I can start, but um, Allison, sure. I to jump in. So MAPC sure. has done ample work looking at the, the expansion of dedicated bus lanes um, throughout the region. So. Specifically, what we've done is, is parking studies to look at how much parking utilization is happening on certain corridors, um, particularly corridors that see high bus delay and, and high frequency service. Um, so that was one really big effort that we were doing prior to the pandemic. It is obviously challenging to do parking studies right now because, as Allison demonstrated, you know, our transportation behaviors have totally flipped on its head, on their head as a result of the, the pandemic. And um, so many people working from home. Um, so, so look, parking studies and evaluating the, the potential for dedicated bus lanes was um, one way in which we were pretty, pretty involved in, in that effort. Um, Allison, is there anything else that you want to highlight? I think that's a, I, that's a great response, Kasha. And it's, it's also, as Kasha mentioned, a, a, real, a real challenge, especially um, um, with the, the current transportation and, and pandemic environment we're, we're currently in. 
Awesome. And then another question from Martha, how are you addressing the non-tailpipe emissions, brake and tire wear and resuspended road dust from electric vehicles? Well, I would, I would say that with the, um, the wear and tear, like that's, that's um, part of our discussion that electric vehicles are not um, so a silver bullet to um, um, all to the holistic challenge of um, transportation um, emissions, and um, it is a solution. But there are still um, challenges with um, um, vehicular travel related to all vehicular types, such as the um, um, dust, which could be created by by any. Um, technology type with a vehicle. So I would say um, it's, it's part of the picture, but, but not a, um, I wanna say it's, it's, it's with it, it is, um, a, that's part of a challenge, but, um, but there are other areas that can be addressed that can help balance this um, overall goal to reduce emissions. Yeah. Um, I, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, Kasha. I was just going to say, I'm not familiar with any particular solutions that would help mitigate that issue. Mm -hmm. I think that's, you know, really part of the reason that we, we, you know, obviously electrification is important, but it can't be the only thing that we do to alleviate um, emissions from transportation. So that, that's also why so much of our, our advocacy and our, our research and planning is, is around public transit, um, expanding walking and biking infrastructure and um, building really complete communities around transit. Yeah, and I guess even on the flip side, there are other um, benefits like electric vehicles don't create noise. Um, also with um, a lot of electric vehicle types with the braking, there's regenerative braking, which, um, which, which um, increases the, the um, range of a vehicle. So, so with any um, new technology types, there are, there are pros, but there are also are um, challenges. Great, and then a question from Krishma Arora who asked, how can transportation demand management be used as a tool to mitigate emissions um, for small cities like Medford? Um, so transportation demand management, I think, you know, it can apply to both employers and, and residential buildings as well. Um, so in, in terms of the, the residential side, I think I would point to the town of Arlington. They have a really strong transportation demand management bylaw, but, um, you know, for, for residential buildings over a certain size, developers are required to pursue at least three different transportation demand management strategies. And they include a couple of different examples, anything, you know, ranging from, um, you know, providing bicycle parking on, on site to, um, you know, providing their, their residents with, with transit passes, um, a few, a few other options as well. And, you know, it's, I think it's collectively the, these smaller changes at the local level are, are what's going to make a difference. And I think, you know, as you have more people walking and biking, you see greater demand for that, that infrastructure. And then as that infrastructure gets, gets built, that brings out more people walking and biking. So I think those, those initiatives, you know, they may feel smaller. Um, they may be, you know, applying to smaller buildings. They, they do set the groundwork for making 
more change in the long run. And, and also to add to that, I think with TDM measures, it's I look at it as a whole menu of um, opportunities to um, look at for what is a good fit for the area, whether it be a commercial business or a residential building. Um, on a larger scale, um, some transportation management associations operate shuttles and, and that's a real um, benefit as well because that, that um, takes out the, um, the need to have multiple vehicles on the road. That's all the questions that were in the box at the moment. Um, thank you guys, that was really great. Yes, that was great. And I, I would like to thank all of the presenters tonight. Uh, and uh, Ali, I guess there'll be, the recording will be available later on for anyone who missed part of this. Is that true? Yeah. So we're going to be putting the recording up on the Medford uh, Community Media, Medford TV webpage. Um, there's also going to be an email going out to everybody who had registered with the link on how to join that. Um, it's medfordtv.org, but it'll have that link and a bunch of others as well. Um, and um, we'll probably make that available on the Go Green Medford website also. Um, very good. Well, uh, thank you, Allie, as well for getting us, hurting us all together, <laughs> uh, hurting cats alike. Uh, and uh, it's been very entertaining and, and informative. Uh, so I'd like to, again, thank all of the presenters and Allie and uh, also the Tufts Energy Group. This was an excellent co coordination with them. And we look forward to future uh, coordinations uh, next year. Absolutely. Thank you so much for working with us. As we are um, wrapping up, thank you very much to Bob for really being the push behind this and making this occur. Bob Payne had the brainchild of doing this symposium. And if it wasn't for his dogged enthusiasm about this, it would not have come together. So I really appreciate that. And I want everybody to thank him for having for organizing it and to thank Allie Heipel, our um, graduate intern, who has really done a lot of the details, you know, the production to make this occur. We appreciate it. If people would like to be more involved or be connected, here's some information and Allie will be sending this out in email to everybody who registered. Um, but in addition to being able to follow us, the, the energy and environment for the city on Facebook, there is an email list that is a general list, the Go Green Medford at Gmail, that is a, um, or it's a Google group, and it, you can subscribe to it. And then different organizations, including the city, post green things that are relevant to Medford. Um, it's a little bit less of a discussion and a little bit more of an announcement list, um, but it is open for people to sign up for it. And so we'll have that information as well. Um, as well as how to follow on all the, the social media sites. So thank you to Bob and to Allie for your hard work on this and all of our presenters this evening. We really appreciate it. Okay. I think thank you. Adjourn. <laughs>